the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This program is sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ. There's a message true and glad for the sinful and the sad. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. It will give them courage new. It will help them to be true. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring out. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Redeeming the Time. I am your host, Chris Macy, and I am the minister here with the North Valley Church of Christ. All right, if you're home or if you have your Bible and you want to follow along with me, I'm going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and, and a few other passages there in 1 Timothy. But I want to start off with this. Have you ever seen those uh, uh, shows, you know, where you watch home improvement shows, the Fixer Upper, Property Brothers, things like that? It, isn't it amazing when you see the home renovation those folks are able to do with now I know this, this is a lot of money I, I used when I first heard this I thought a hundred thousand dollars seems like you'd be able to buy a whole new house but now of course nowadays a hundred thousand dollars is not as much as it used to be uh, it, it might might buy you a Tesla but now you know these people do they do they do some amazing things with a hundred grand on renovating a house but here's the trouble with a home improvement trends, right? 15 years from now, people on these home improvement shows will be saying, man, those white kitchen cupboards are awful. We need to add some walls there between the living room and the dining room and the kitchen. And why is it so open and things of that nature, right? It, it, maybe we don't realize it, but the trends today is to rip out all the traditional wood cabinets and replace them with white cabinets and tear out the walls and make open concept kitchens and whatnot. That's the trend. Now, for me, I, I saw one where they were tearing out these wood cabinets and they were beautiful. I was like, what are you doing? I like that. But, well, no, that's not for everyone. Today, it's it's not like that. But trends change. Uh, they're... they're uh, they, they rotate, and if you wait long enough, those maple cabinets are going to be back in style, just like uh, bell-bottom pants are today. I was getting some blue jeans the other day at uh, J.C. Penney's, and uh, I saw blue jean jackets and leather jackets, and I thought, man, I, I should have kept those things from back when I was a kid, but apparently that's coming back now. But in the end, no one can decorate. No one can arrange your house like you can. You and I, we are the sole architects uh, of its ambience. We are in charge of creating a desired feel and look for your house or your office. Maybe you like country or rustic or contemporary, whatever it is. You're free to choose. But imagine if someone came into your home and rearranged everything or replaced everything. Maybe on the one hand, you'd be thrilled. Maybe you'd thank them. But on the other hand, you might say, what do you think you're doing, pal? What gives you the right to change my house? It's my house. But here's where I'm going with this. This is the application. The church is God's 
house, isn't it? It's his household. It is his dwelling. God's house is supposed to be built, furnished, and arranged according to his design. But how often have we decided to rearrange or re, uh, renovate God's house? Man, far too often. And what gives us the right to change God's plans and his designs? We don't have the right. So today I want us to look at why church matters. And I like that title because it's a play on words. Church does matter, and that's why we need to protect God's church and be sure that we follow God's designs, his plans for the church. But also, this is a play on words that has to do with matters pertaining to church. The letter that Paul wrote here to this young minister named Timothy is full of church matters, all kinds of nuts and bolts about how to do church together, how to conduct matters in God's household, house rules for God's family. Paul's two letters to Timothy and his letter to Titus are called pastoral letters um, because they're written to a, a young minister. Now, pastoral, people in the denominational world think, well, that's the preacher. But really, the pastor is the elder. Timothy and Titus are the ministers, the evangelists. But they, these things are, though, full of practical church matters. There, there are things pertaining to the minister. There's things in there pertaining to the elder and deacons. Some of Paul's uh, other letters contain a lot more theology, but these letters kind of read like a handbook, a how-to manual. In chapter 3, if you have your uh, your Bibles there, but if you're driving, don't read. I'll read it to you. 1 Timothy three fourteen to 15 here's what Paul told Timothy the reason for the letter. He said, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul wanted to remind Timothy about proper conduct of God's children and God's household. I, I love I love the descriptions of the church that Paul used here. They speak to how precious and important the church really is because church matters. But let, let's do a little background first. A little background. Uh, the opening of the letter, 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 and 2, he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As was the custom of uh, letter writing in Paul's day, the writer would identify who was writing, then identify to whom they were writing, and then uh, they'd give a formalic uh, greeting, thanksgiving, or blessing. But we notice that Paul followed that, that basic outline. First, he identifies himself. Uh, the book of Acts uh, and the letters of Paul reveal a lot about Paul's life, his story. Born Saul of Tarsus, right? Uh, Tarsus on the southern coast of modern-day Turkey. The date of Paul's birth, now we don't know uh, what it is, but he was born to Jewish parents who had Roman citizenship. He studied to become a Pharisee under the rabbi named Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And Paul violently opposed Christianity until he had a personal encounter with the risen Christ, uh, and he was commissioned as an apostle. He was an apostle 
by the command of God. Certainly, Timothy knew that Paul was an apostle. But Paul brought it up because uh, other readers of Timothy's letter in the future would need to know, I think, of Paul's apostolic authority. After Paul's conversion, he became a preacher. He became a missionary. He was a tent maker by trade and would often support himself in that so that he wouldn't be seen as trying to profit from preaching the, the word. He suffered greatly as an apostle and listed some of that suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. That included beatings, imprisonments, shipwreck, all kinds of dangers. Paul's life, his life was an amazing display of God's grace and power to take the church's greatest opponent and persecutor and turn him into the church's greatest preacher and promoter. He was faithful to the end, martyred because of his faith, sometime around 64, maybe 67 A.D., and Paul described Jesus as our hope. And Jesus truly is our hope. He was Paul's hope. Paul goes on. He identifies the recipient of the letter. Timothy, my true son in the faith. The relationship between Paul and Timothy had been formed on Paul's first missionary journey to Lystra, a Roman colony sometime between 45 and 48 uh, A.D., Uh, We'll see that in Acts chapters 13 and 14. But anyway, Timothy was the son of a Gentile father. He had a Jewish mother named Eunice. And it appears that both his mother, uh, uh, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, became Christians as a result of Paul's first missionary journey there to Lystra. During that first visit, the people of Lystra hailed Paul and Barnabas, Oh, God, they're gods, and then turned uh, turned on them and stoned Paul, leaving him for dead. If young Timothy had not witnessed the event, he surely must have heard about it. And by the time Paul returned to Lystra on his second missionary journey, some three to five years later, Timothy had become a Christian, grown in his faith, and the leaders encouraged Paul to allow Timothy to join his missionary team. Acts 16, verses 1 and 2. So, Paul takes Timothy as a companion for his missionary journey and as a co-worker. And it was a a, a role Timothy would play until the end of Paul's life. Now, Paul came to regard Timothy as his own beloved and faithful child in the Lord and his own son in the faith. That's from 1 Corinthians 4 and here, right here in 1 Timothy 1, 2. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul gave Timothy this compliment. He said, I have no one else of kindred spirit. Man, that's amazing. No, remember, spirit is mind and heart. There's no one else. Other than Timothy, that's more like me. Paul and Timothy went on to work together for more than two years in Ephesus. Timothy is actually named as co-author of six of Paul's letters. And as we move through this letter to Timothy, we're going to see that it it glows really with a flame of a torch passing from uh, from the Apostle Paul's hand to the hand of his friend and protege, Timothy. Timothy is on assignment here in Ephesus. He is charged with the task of strengthening and correcting a church. And Paul sensed the immediacy of the need for giving instructions to Timothy. He hoped to come to Timothy soon, but in case he was delayed, Paul uh, sent the uh, the needed advice and instructions in the letter for there in 1 Timothy 3. So, if you were Paul, what would you have told your understudy when you realize that he was serving a church that was in crisis. And what else would you tell your apprentice when you realized 
that your time was almost up. Now, Paul knew he was going to get out on this one, but he knew they were coming for him. It wasn't going to end here when he got out of the prison this first time. And it it didn't take but just a few years when he went to Spain, came back, got rearrested, and then that was it. But what would you tell Timothy? You would tell him the things he needed to know about and the things that were closest to your heart. These are the very things we see that, that Paul wrote to Timothy. The last thing Paul included in this customary opening of his letter was that formulatic greeting or or the blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The greeting, or that part of the greeting, uh, grace and peace, was a traditional ancient greeting. Paul Christianized it and used it in 11 of his 13 letters. The greeting spoke to Gentiles, grace and uh, Jews, peace, that would be shalom. Only in Paul's two letters to Timothy did he add mercy to the grace and peace. Now, what is grace? Well, grace is getting what we don't deserve. That would be the reward, right? That's grace, getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. That's punishment. You did something wrong, whatever, whatever it is. For us, it's sin. That's the punishment. Mercy is getting what we Uh, not getting what we do deserve. So grace and mercy result in peace from God and peace with God. From that initial customary introduction, Paul moves quickly into the content of the letter. So 1 Timothy uh, divides nicely into four sections. Um, You know, Warren Wearsby has, he, he wrote a small, brief commentary uh, I think he did all the New, New Testament books. I'm not sure. But anyway, I do like the way he simply orders First Timothy. Here's how his outline goes. He says in section 1, chapter 1, the church and its message. Chapters 2 and 3 is the church and its members. Chapter 4, the church and its minister. And then chapters uh, 5 and 6, the church and its ministry. So, we, we we're probably going to follow that. I might change it up a little bit, but I'm going to probably go along with that outline while I work through 1 Timothy. But here, let, let, let's start here with uh, uh, diversions from God's design. Uh, maybe uh, in a few weeks we'll begin uh, examining the content of the letter. I know i got a lot of things I'm working on here on the radio program, a lot of things going on. But I do want to get through this as well. So, I want to consider some of the challenges uh, as we, for the rest of this uh, lesson, consider some of the challenges facing the church and some things to think about from this introduction. Now, I started this off with this illustration about private ownership of a house and how no one has a right to renovate or remodel a house without permission. The church is God's house. We know that. You know that if you're listening to this radio program and, and this station, you, you believe, chances are you believe in God. And you know that the church is God's house. So let's consider some of the ways people have been renovating, remodeling the church against God's will and against his design. First, the church diverts from God's blueprint, his pattern, and his design when it has a deeper commitment to tradition 
rather than to Scripture. When I say tradition, I'm talking about our traditions that we brought in. Rigid rules in many congregations. And the words, we've always done it this way or that way, that echoes through the halls of many churches, doesn't it? Now, there is nothing wrong with tradition, all right, per se, because tradition can remind us of our roots, our heritage, provides opportunities for celebration and consistency. We, we have traditions here at the North Valley Church of Christ. But we go too far when we make tradition and not the scriptures our primary yardstick for measuring ministry and measuring the church. So let's not do that. A second way, the church has diverted from God's blueprint and design is when the church cares more about being successful by the world's standard than by modeling God's values. A disregard for the Bible's instructions about the church can lead not only to traditionalism, but to secularism, which is an adoption of the world's standards rather than God's standards. In the world's arena, bigger, flashier, always better, right? And a lot of church leaders turn to secular companies to learn how to market, how to promote church growth rather than depend on the word and Christians to draw people into God's family. Many churches have abandoned the slow, steady climb of discipleship for the roller coaster ride of big business and entertainment. A lot of ministers, they don't really preach. They're more showmen. They're no longer ministers or managers, or they consider themselves the CEOs rather than spiritual servants. That's sad, but it's true. And and they and as far as um, I know, I'm probably going to hit on this again. You know, changing into the uh, uh, the world standards. I I get videos from people of these ministers that are wearing these you know ministerial clothing. What for me, I wear a suit. That's it. But they have that you know those. Ri- robed with a sash. I saw this one guy someone sent to me. He had his robe on, but his sash was a, a rainbow. But it, I knew what he meant. I, I hate saying that because the rainbow is a representative of God's promise, but we know it's been hijacked. He's got this rainbow sash on, and he's talking about, and he's you could tell he's effeminate. Maybe he's gay, I don't know. But he is most certainly promoting homosexuality from his pulpit. Not God's pulpit. It's his pulpit. But he's doing it under the guise of Christianity. Unbelievable. Anyway, I'm, I'm going too far on that. Another way the church has diverted from God's blueprint, from his design, is when the church is polarized by labels rather than unified by love. Jesus envisioned a unified church rather than a divided one. His prayer that we would all be one like he and the father are one and that our unity would lead to a, a, a really be a witness to the world about him that's john 17 and that being one is having the same mind and same heart jesus looked just like the father we ought to look just like jesus in the way we think and talk and act everything we say not our way but his way but now today the christian world is far too divided isn't it I'm sure that grieves God. Far too often, we don't love first and love enough the way God does. The way God does. That doesn't mean 
that we should compromise the gospel or surrender our convictions in order to get along. But it does mean that whatever attempts to divide us, love will keep us treating each other with kindness and respect. And a commitment to love will keep us from letting worldly and sinful things separate us. And reminding ourselves who the enemy really is will help us to love everyone and be more unified. And that love is that agape love. All right, Don't think it's that always happy, warm, fuzzy feeling. It's like with a child. When they keep climbing up, like let's say you got a big old stack of chairs, right? You know, those, those chairs that you, you can stack them up, you can get about six, seven high. You see a little kid climbing up on one. You can tell it's about ready to teeter over or it's going to fall. He's going to fall into a, a, you know, some concrete and that's going to fall on top of him. How dangerous is that for that child? That's pretty dangerous, right? Very dangerous. So you go grab him, grab the chair, grab him, you pull him off. Don't do that again. But then you catch him doing it again. What do you do? If you love that child, you will spank the child. You will let them know, you better not do that again. I'm going to spank your bottom. It's going to hurt, but it won't be hurt nearly as bad as those chairs falling down. You're doing that for his benefit. Maybe spanking isn't the one the way to go for you. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't spank. I do, but I have learned with four kids, sometimes some, kids, some things don't work on some kids. Or maybe it's, it's too much for certain kids. I got a kid where all I have to do is give him a look and he falls apart and cries. I got another kid where I could spank her all day and won't do a thing. But I put her in a room by herself. That's it. All right, she'll, she'll straighten right up. But anyway, whatever it is, you discipline because you love them. You, may, you want them to know the truth and learn. And we ought to have that same love for others. In the adult realm, it's different. I'm not saying spank them, but discipline. Letting them know the truth. Okay, I better move forward. Things to keep in mind. Let's let's keep the following that I want to talk about next in mind as we move through this series. Number one, let's realize that God has given us instructions for the church, and therefore we should follow God's instructions, right? No-brainer, right? You would think. When we buy a car or when we buy a major appliance, we get instruction manuals that go with it. If we follow the instructions, usually the car, usually the appliance will perform much better for us. Why is that? Because the instruction manual was put together by the people who designed the product. They know how it's supposed to work and how best to maintain it. It is the same with the church. God designed the church. He knows how it works best. And God has given us instructions for the church in the Bible, and a lot of them are right here in 1 Timothy. We will do well to follow his instructions. So let's be the 21st century church based on 1st century principles. God's truth doesn't change. Times do. So do style. So do methods. But we must remain rooted in Scripture while we try to stay in touch with the changing culture. Number two. We need to realize that there will always be tension between scriptural ideals and human realities. We're striving to be all that God wants us to be individually and collectively, but we need to realize that perfection will elude us on this side of heaven. Nothing and no one is perfect. Now, we're striving for godliness. We need to hold each other accountable for godliness. We must allow room, though, for failure and brokenness and help one another to get up and keep on keeping up for the Lord. Number three. Remember that truth is truth, whether it's modeled or not. 
Truth doesn't change. The failure of individual people does not mean that the truth is not the truth. Right? Paul urged Timothy to live out the reality of his faith, and Paul realized that Christianity would not fail even if Timothy failed to remain faithful. The church will remain because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Matthew 16, verse 18. We have the privilege of participating in the building of God's kingdom and this building project will succeed because of his perfect power and faithfulness, not ours. So those of us who are you know, older in the faith. We need to be good Pauls and pass on the faith and the ways of the church to the next generation. And those of us who are younger in the faith need to be good Timothys. And we need to learn from the older Christians so we can grow and become the next generation of Pauls. But let's all of us strive to be faithful and to conduct ourselves appropriately in God's household, the church of the living God. When you look at the very beginnings of, um, of the Bible, of the church, what do, you, what do we see? We, we see, you know, that, for example, you got, you got the three dispensations, right? The patriarchal, the mosaic, and the Christian. During the patriarchal age, God talked to Noah, build the ark. Noah had to build the ark just the way God said. To Abraham, follow me, you know, obey my... Uh, uh, Hear what I say and do it, and he'll bless him. Same to Isaac, same to Jacob. And then you get to the Mosaic law. Follow the law, follow my commandments, and I will bless you. And nothing of that ever changed. God always wanted his people to follow him by faith. In the Christian age, it's the same thing. It hasn't changed, so why are people changing it? Why is it when you drive down the road, you have all these different churches who who approach it in different ways? Why? Why? It doesn't change, and it hasn't changed. Don't you want to know more? Maybe, maybe you have been wondering about that. Why do we do? Why do you do certain things you do in your worship service at your church? What does the Bible say? Do you want to know more about that? Follow this program. If I'm not, if it's the, if you need more than just once a week for about twenty five minutes, then give me a, a call or, or email me or come by the North Valley Church of Christ. My email is Chris Macy, all one word, C-H-R-I-S-M-A-C-Y at Outlook.com. You can find us on our website, nvcoc.net, North Valley Church of Christ. Uh, it's an acro- that's our acronym there. Go to the website. You can find a contact there for us. You can find out where we're at, where our worship times are. We would love to have you because we are a people who want to look like Christ. When we call ourselves the Church of Christ, it's not a name. It is a description of who we are because we are striving to make the most of every opportunity the Lord gives us. Let us redeem the time. And speaking of time, it's time for me to sign off. Thank you for being here, and God bless. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. This program was sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.